Good afternoon and welcome to Cato. I'm Dan Pearson, Senior Fellow here in the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies at Cato. This forum is focused on the International Trade Commission's clear correct decision, which involves the electronic importation of uh, digital information. Being absent-minded, I occasionally have been surprised by the unexpected arrival of other types of digital information when I didn't want it. So I, this is just a reminder that turn off the phones if, uh, well, you know, just avoiding embarrassment. Um, first, a bit of background about the case. My exposure to clear plastic teeth straighteners began in 2006 when I was serving as an ITC commissioner. The Invisalign company held valid US patents for technology that was developed in the 1990s. And so it, 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 they were um, dealing with infringing imports of their plastic, clear plastic teeth aligners. Uh, they filed a perfectly ordinary Section 337 case, and the commission agreed with their interpretation and issued a limited exclusion order. In 2012, Invisalign came back to the ITC. Uh, a new competitor, ClearCorrect, was selling infringing teeth aligners in the US market. But this time, a different business model was used, perhaps aided and abetted by the reality that some of the former OrthoClear executives now were working for ClearCorrect. So they knew the problems they got into the first time. They thought they maybe could um, avoid some of them the second. Uh, the, the new business model involved making the digital scans of, of patients' teeth in the United States, transmitting those files to Pakistan. And in Pakistan, the, that information was used to create the models of the plastic aligners. That information then was transferred back to the United States, downloaded into a 3D printer, and uh, the actual uh, plastic products then were produced. Plastic products produced, yeah. Um, but there was no importation of a physical product. Now, the ITC generally doesn't look kindly on efforts to um, circumvent its exclusion orders. This certainly looked like one. So I happily joined my colleagues in voting to institute the investigation. Now, some have suggested that ClearCorrect demonstrates that the ITC is involved in a power grab. It wants to expand its authority to regulate new areas of commerce. My experience at the commission is that there's way too much to do already most of the time. Real resource limitations. I don't remember ever sitting in the office thinking, boy, I think we should expand our authority so we have something more to do. Uh, so the commission just ha has to deal with the cases that are brought to us. This was a perfectly colorable argument that this, this is a case that should be taken up, so we, we instituted it. Now, prior to the release of the ITC determination in this case in 2014, in April, I had the good sense to leave the commission and come to Cato. I have no doubt that there were some really interesting discussions among commissioners about what to do with this case. Although split decisions on anti-dumping countervailing duty cases are really common, I even used to vote differently than Commissioner Aronoff if you can imagine that, um, sometimes. 
Uh, but in, in the final analysis, the commission split five to one in favor of issuing a cease and desist order against ClearCorrect. Now, my view is that the ITC performed a genuine service by taking up this case, by considering it carefully, including offering two opinions, and then handing off a fully developed record to the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. You likely are aware that a month ago, a three-judge panel of that court ruled in a split one decision that digital imports do not qualify as articles under the 337 statute. The two judges in the majority used different reasoning to reach their conclusions. So we've got a split commission compounded by a split Fed Circuit panel. In terms of 337 jurisprudence, things just don't get much better than this. Enough of my background, okay? The rest of these people actually know more about the case. Uh, Jeffrey Manny is the founder and executive director of the International Center for Law and Economics based in Portland, Oregon. He serves on the Federal Communications Commission, Federal Communications Commission, FCC, Consumer Advisory Commission, in which capacity he chairs, co-chairs the Broadband Working Group. Manny focuses primarily on antitrust, telecommunications, consumer protection, intellectual property, and technology policy. In addition to a number of other accomplishments, he formerly served as a law professor at Lewis and Clark Law School. With respect to today's topic, he has written that uh, he has written in support of the decision of the commission majority. Sapna Kumar is an associate professor of law at the University of Houston Law Center. Previously, she clerked for Judge Ripple on the seventh uh, circuit court of appeals and served for two years as a faculty fellow at Duke University Law School. Prior to that, devoted several years to intellectual property litigation for law firms in Chicago. She is the 2013 recipient of both the University of Houston Teaching Excellence Award and the Student Bar Association's Faculty of the Year Award. So I look forward to benefiting from her teaching today. With regard to ClearCorrect, she has written that um, the commission got things all wrong. Shara Aronoff has been of counsel at Covington and Burlington in Washington since 2014. Her practice focuses on technology, life sciences, intellectual property, and international trade enforcement, including Section 337. Prior to shifting to private practice, she served for more than eight years as an ITC commissioner including two years as chairman. Now, fortunately, her chairmanship succeeded in raising the standard a bit uh, from what had been achieved by the previous chairman, and yet she did that without ever making him feel bad about it. Her earlier experiences include serving as uh, International Trade Counsel for the uh, Senate Finance Committee and as an attorney in the ITC's Office of General Counsel. She knows ClearCorrect well, having been part of the commission's five to one majority. Her purpose today is not to argue the merits of the decision, but rather to provide context and perspective from the standpoint of a former ITC insider who now is serving as a 337 practitioner. You may already have guessed this, 
but in the spirit of full disclosure, I also should say that she's a really good friend, and I'm just delighted to be able to collaborate with her once again. So let's begin with Jeff Manny. Jeff, the podium is yours. Uh, okay, if you have trouble reading anything, um, don't let me know. But, uh, uh, but these slides are online at this address, and uh, I would love to have you download them and read them at your leisure, because I'm going to rush through them in the 12 to 15 minutes that I have allotted, and it's about a two-hour talk. So, uh, so. As I said, I will rush a little bit, um, uh, but please feel free to, to read the slides at your leisure. And I'd love to have um, uh, comments and questions and the like. Um, I forgot to put my email on here. I don't know if it's something that's accessible on the Cato website, but I'm sure we'd all love to continue the, the discussion with any of you. So we'll find a way to make sure you can find us. Um, so uh, as I said, it's about a two-hour talk. I'm making that up. I have no idea. Uh, but I know it's more than 15 minutes. Um, so I think I should start with uh, the short version. Um, so <clears throat> at issue in the case, uh, as Dan laid out, uh, is this, this um, uh, a company that was found in violation of uh, the patent laws for its production of uh, infringing uh, teeth straighteners, plastic teeth straighteners, uh, found a way to circumvent that law, decided that rather than producing these straighteners here in the U.S., they could produce them outside the U.S., uh, and instead of shipping the plastic aligners into the U.S., they could instead ship digital models of the, uh, uh, the devices to the U.S., have them printed out on a 3D printer, uh, and, and voila, all of the infringement uh, uh, happens outside the United States. That's where the ITC comes in. Okay, now, at issue in the case, uh, if you read the, the uh, circuit courts, the Federal Circuit's uh, uh, opinion reviewing the ITC uh, opinion, is the definition of the word articles in the statute. The question is, are these digital data sets articles as contemplated by uh, the unfair competition provisions of the Tariff Act or do they constitute something that is not appropriately within the purview of the ITC under the Tariff Act? And right off the bat, I want to point, note something that um, I think underlies the problematic interpretation that the Federal Circuit takes. Now, here, if you can see it, I have a quote from the ITC opinion and the uh, majority opinion. Now, the ITC said there's a threshold issue. They agreed we have to address this question of, of articles. Um, and, and what they said was, we have to address whether the electronic transmissions of digital data sets constitute importation of articles, right? Electronic transmissions is the analogous to importation language. And digital data sets are, for the ITC, the articles being imported. Now look what the circuit court does. Here, the accused articles are the transmission of the digital models. Now, I think this is really important because I think one could say that it's semantic and, and, and that it's a distinction without a difference. But actually, I think it underlies um, a, a clear misunderstanding of the technology at issue here. From, for, for the Federal Circuit and for, for others who have, have criticized the um, uh, ITC's decision, 
the data is a kind of amorphous, intangible thing with no physical properties that's just kind of floating around out there in the ether um, and uh, can't in any way be constituted sufficiently to be defined as an article or anything else, a good or a product or anything else that would come under the ITC's purview. It's all about electronic transmissions. It's not about electronic transmission of a particular thing. In my mind, though, the electronic transmission is analogous to the ships bringing uh, infringing smartphones into the country. The mode in which they come in is not, and, and the, the circuit court actually cites approvingly the ITC's statement exactly to this effect, the ships bringing the importing de infringing devices in are not themselves articles. They are not themselves imported articles subject to the ITC's purview. It's the stuff they carry that is. All right, so <clears throat> the Federal Circuit thinks that the absence of this physical embodiment is the defining feature that determines whether or not something is amenable to ITC review under the Tariff Act or not. Now, this is an inference on their own part. Congress doesn't say this anywhere. This is them interpreting the Tariff Act and deciding that that's what uh, con uh, Congress meant. In my view, and we'll talk about this more uh, in a few minutes, the language on articles is actually being used in the Act to define the scope of the ITC's uh, consumer protection, unfair competition authority. The idea here is that the ITC doesn't have the same scope of authority that, say, the FTC does. It doesn't have authority to review mergers. It doesn't have uh, authority to ensure that companies have appropriate data security measures, whether the FTC has that authority or not. Um, it has authority limited to questions of unfair competition in the importation of stuff. I don't think the word stuff existed in the 1920s, so they didn't use it. They used the word articles. But, but to me, that's how that word is being used. It wasn't ever meant to be operative here. Now, on top of that, <coughs> it's well accepted that ordinary IP laws would allow a district court to impose a host of remedies against an infringer's use of exactly the kind of data sets at issue in this case. Right? We have long experience dealing with, or in, in dealing with infringing intangible stuff. I'm going to use the word stuff instead of article so I don't step on uh, anyone's toes. But let's, I'll just assume that they mean the same thing. Um, it's also well accepted uh, that um, <clears throat> trade remedy statutes are designed to have broader reach than ordinary district courts and IP laws. That's why the trade remedies were added quite explicitly. Right? So we have uh, district courts operating under the IP laws with clear authority to deal with this kind of, uh, of stuff. We have a trade uh, agency that is granted very similar, if not the same authority, but broader. Um, and, uh, uh, okay, so broader authority. Now, another issue that's been raised, as Dan mentioned, was the fear that if the ITC can exercise this broader authority in the context of this kind of intangible digitally transmitted content, it will end up regulating the internet and, of course, regulating it into oblivion. There's this idea that there is nothing to protect the innocent intermediaries, the ISPs and the Googles and everyone else of the world from the ITC's reach being brought, of course, by other commercial parties. But we know that district courts haven't destroyed the internet and they have had authority over this kind of thing for quite a long time. 
Uh, and they have developed, and the ITC adopts, follows, methods of protecting intermediaries from liability. They have safe harbors, defenses. Uh, they haven't shut down the internet. All right, nevertheless, the Federal Circuit panel majority lambasts the ITC for treating an intangible data set that was well-defined, clearly uh, a distinguishable thing from all of the other data floating out there in the ether. Just calling that an article within the meaning of the statute is unacceptable to the Federal Circuit. Instead, the Federal Circuit, well, the panel majority, asserts that Congress intended to write a statute prohibiting unfair competition except if it's caused by something having a feature that's utterly irrelevant to its ability to actually cause harm. That strikes me as a little bit odd. That strikes me as a far less reasonable interpretation than the ITCs. And by the way, with respect to, to the mode of, uh, we'll, we'll see, you'll see this in a minute, with respect to a debate over whether digital transmissions arrive over the wires or on physical medium, that, that's a debate that was completely meaningless. It wouldn't have made any sense to the drafters of the Tariff Act in 1929. Okay, uh, now you can all fall asleep. The rest of it's just repetitions of that. Uh, there's some jokes, so stay with me. Uh, okay, so um, uh, the, the review in this case right, is informed by the Chevron Doctrine. One of the big questions here is, does the ITC, well, is uh, should the court grant the ITC's interpretation of the word articles or interpretation of the statute? Generally, deference usually afforded independent agencies uh, by Chevron, uh, or is there some reason that they shouldn't, either because the statute isn't, in fact, ambiguous or because the ITC's interpretation was unreasonable? Uh, <clears throat> okay. Because I have only 20 minutes left. Just kidding. Uh, uh, I won't read all of this, but I, I, will, I will just draw your attention in particular to this point that I made a little while ago. Um, articles here is just a marker. Look at the orange language up here. This is the operative language from section 337. The, um, the, the language, the importation of articles into the United States or their sale by consignees or agents, that's used to define uh, what it is, the area of commerce that the ITC has unfair methods of competition authority over. Um, I think looking too deeply at the dictionary meaning of articles overlooks the fact that it's just a marker here. Okay. Um, now, the thing is that if it isn't just a marker and if it is meant to have a uh, operative effect, um, once the, the, the Federal Circuit gets done uh, uh, deconstructing the text, and, and some of this also is from Sapna's uh, article, just because I could include more words than the the Federal Circuit happened to mention, but I think they would agree, right? These are all of the words that, that um, articles might mean. They might be synonyms for articles, none of which can encompass the digital data sets at issue in this case, if I understand the Federal Circuit and Safna's article right. So I don't know what's left other than the word stuff. And again, I don't know if that existed in 1929, but maybe someone else does. Okay, so, so I, right away I see a problem if you've interpreted the statute to exclude from Congress's ability in 1929 to use a word, assuming they did, let's just say they did intend 
for these kind of digital data sets to come under the statute, if you have made it impossible for them to actually use the English language to do that, um, I think you're probably on the wrong track. And you might want to step back and say, well, well, all right, let's see which of these phrases they could have used. And maybe articles, for example, was meant to encompass the kind of thing at issue here. <clears throat> OK, but I think this is the wrong Chevron question anyway. Right? The whole deal with Chevron collapses into an investigation into a, 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 an attempt to discern what Congress's intent was. <clears throat> and um, with respect to the operative issues in this case, it doesn't really, the right question is not what was the dictionary definition of articles? What was the, the, the word that Congress had in mind, the synonym they might have used when they wrote the word articles? The relevant question is really whatever word they used, how did they mean for it to be interpreted? How did they mean for it uh, to uh, be defined in the unknown and unknowable future uh, 100 years down the road? And uh, Judge Newman, in her dissent in the case, gets at exactly this. Um, uh, she's, she identifies this as the right question to ask. And the problem is, I don't necessarily know the answer to this. I have some thoughts about it. But what I do know is that the Federal Circuit didn't try to answer this at all. Um, uh, this, to their mind, was not the relevant question, but I, I think that's a complete mistake. Okay, so they are looking at the word uh, articles, and they are looking at it <coughs> very, very carefully, as the ITC did, by the way, as well. As the Federal Circuit points out, the ITC spent, what was it, 20 pages or something like that, defining the word articles. Now, they can be excused for doing that because they probably thought that that's what the Federal Circuit was going to do uh, in response, but the Federal Circuit is engaging in a level of hypertextualism that I think is completely inconsistent with the ability to discern congressional intent. Okay, now first of all, the thing we're talking about here, the stuff that we're talking about here, has a lot of the properties that one would think of when one thinks of articles or products or goods. They are uh, uniquely defined. They are defined, they are delimited. Uh, they have a particular function, they're unique. Uh, it's easy to determine the content. They are signed in such a way that you know the, the, where the relevant data starts and where it ends. Um, <clears throat> they are data sets, data models of particular sets of teeth straighteners. They are representations of and soon to be instantiated physical things. They're not abstract data or information. They're not vague or accidental. They're not some amorphous thing that you might very well think Congress intended to exclude from the ITC's purview. They had economic value. They were traded in commerce. And they were actually causing precisely the kind of harm that the statute was meant to protect against. I think it's far less reasonable to think that these sorts of entities were meant to be excluded uh, from the statute rather than they were meant to be included. Okay, another relevant point to this is that it's very clear that the statute was meant to be very broad. And it's been broadened several times since uh, in, in ways that directly bear on this case, but I won't discuss. It is very broad. And there is nothing, no language in the act that, that, that uh, indicates a congressional intent to narrow the statute, the scope of the things under uh, the um, ITC's purview, except in the sense that they wanted to narrow it to things in international trade, right? Not mergers, but imports. Things coming into the country from outside the country. Right? But, but otherwise, every type and form of unfair practice was fair game. Now, the supreme irony here 
is that the majority asserts that it's maintaining fealty to the objective definition of the, of the statute. What they're doing by this close reading of dictionaries and other uh, uh, references to the word articles and, and related things is, is divining congressional intent uh, uh, in a way that, as I say here, with a mantle of Burkean conservatism that would make even Justice Scalia blush. The thing is that that's not actually what they're doing. If that, even if that were what they were doing, Scalia would blush. But here, they're not actually doing that. They're not, as I said before, looking for what is actually congressional intent about what matters. They're looking at a static definition of a single word in a many hundred or thousand word statute. Uh, I commend to everyone uh, Tom Merrill's article on this that explains why this is not what Chevron was intended to be. This is not a good way of divining congressional intent. Uh, all right, uh, that's repetitious, so I won't go into it, but it's really interesting, so please download it and read it. <clears throat> um, okay, so one of the points that's made in a couple of places, uh, in the majority opinion here, for example, is that the only purported article were these uh, imported digital data. Note, by the way, digital data, as though it's all digital data in the world. I, there are very few places in the opinion where the court actually refers to these as what they are digital data sets that are digital models of physical things. They just refer to data. And, and not to be overly critical, but in, in Sapna's paper, she does the same thing. She refers to it as information. And, and hopefully I'll have time to get to that. That's really important to this idea that somehow this is going to bring down the internet. This isn't information. This is a specific piece of information about a very specific and well-defined thing. OK, but they also thought it was relevant that they were being transferred electronically and not on physical disks compact disks or thumb drives. Of course, that can't have been a distinction that mattered to Congress in 1922 or 29 or any time for a long time. <clears throat> um, uh, OK, now it's also argued that Congress could never have had in mind any sort of electronic transmission when it wrote the, uh, the Tariff Act. Um, but although the clear, correct majority uh, and Sapna dismissed these as irrelevant, actually the ITC found cases where precisely that was happening. It was pretty well understood in the 1920s that you could have an unfair competition sort of claim arising from transmissions of digital data. In this case, over telegraph wires, but what's the difference, right? And by the way, that's what was happening in the sting too. Okay, this is the 1930s, but, but here was uh, a crime in this case, uh, or a, a violation of I don't know how many statutes, arising out of manipulation of de digital data signals. This wasn't crazy. Uh, okay, <clears throat> let me try to get to, um, in my last, how many minutes? This is counting up now. Sorry, I thought this was going to be counting down. Okay, no, another minute. No. Okay, all right. Uh, so, um, two things. The way the Federal Circuit reads this, um, reads in a kind of technological sunsetting provision uh, with no indication that Congress intended for that to happen at all. Such a static reading of the statute means that as technology involves, uh, evolves, what have, have in fact become extraordinarily important parts of the economy are automatically read out of the ITC's purview, even though it's very clear that Congress meant for the ITC to have very broad purview over very important parts of the economy. That can't be correct, right? All right, now this is the, the last point that I want to make sure I get to, which is that the internet is falling, like the sky is falling. Um, 
it's just not happening, right? This isn't about information qua information. There's nothing in the ITC's opinion that gives it the authority to regulate the internet uh, any more than by uh, um, regulating infringing goods coming in by truck from Mexico, it has authority to regulate the highways. That is just not what's going on here. There are all kinds of limitations in the ITC's opinion in the relevant statutes that circumscribe the authority it has to infringing pieces of data uh, that are protected by various safeguards uh, and other uh, uh, legal standards that they have to meet. Um, and there is no sense that the free flow of legal information is at issue in this case. There's no sense that information is at issue in this case at all. Again, we're talking about a digital manifestation of physical things that infringe in ways that are perfectly well accepted and understood to be within the ITC's purview. They just happen to come in uh, in bits instead of in cargo containers. It's really hard to see how that little distinction is somehow going to bring down the internet. By the way, if you want someone who will bring down the internet, it's the FCC, right? And there's a huge difference between uh, the scope of the authority of the FCC uh, grabs for itself and what the ITC did. And I, I again, I won't have time to go into all of this, but I suggest you look at it. This is, this is an agency doing what the ITC is being accused of. What the ITC is doing is far, far more modest than that. Um, all right, I'm going to, because of, of time, this is an important uh, issue to address, and I'll assume that we'll, we'll get to it in the comments, but I just want to leave you by saying the court's already dealt with these issues in an analogous setting in the Suprema case, which actually overturned the very same justices who were in the majority in the clear correct case. And the standards in the Suprema case very clearly to me hold the seeds for overturning the clear correct case. And I'm fairly sure, or at least I, I certainly hope, that the en banc federal circuit will take this up and will reverse clear correct in exactly the same way they did in Suprema. Thank you. about the limitations of the Tariff Act. And essentially what we're trying to figure out is what did Congress intend in the late 1920s when they passed the Tariff Act? I believe in this radical proposition that words have meaning and that when Congress chose the word articles, it meant for the word articles to mean something and not just be filler for stuff or other things like that, but rather it was a term selected for a reason. And what the Federal Circuit was doing in this case is trying to get at what does this word mean? What does the Tariff Act mean? And how broad is the scope of the ITC's jurisdiction? So before I dive into the case, let me give a little bit of a primer on administrative law. Uh, my background is in both administrative law and patents, and my experience is for a lot of people in more on the patent side of things, you may not have had as much exposure to Chevron and to the administrative law doctrines. So the first thing I want to just mention, the ITC is an independent agency charged with administering the Tariff Act. And under its statute, it's required to use formal adjudication for Section 337 determinations. So we have a landmark Supreme Court case, Chevron versus Natural Resource Defense Council, 
that gives us a two-step test for evaluating such agency interpretations. In step one, we ask ourselves, did Congress speak to the issue at hand, or is the statute ambiguous? If Congress was clear, then we have what's called a step one failure. Um, in that situation, the court follows Congress's clear intent, and it does not defer to the agency's interpretation. However, if the court finds that the statute was in fact ambiguous, it moves to step two, and it asks itself, was the agency's interpretation reasonable? And it's worth mentioning here that step two failures are extremely rare um, outside the DC circuit, um, outside of DC circuit uh, decisions, DC circuit following a slightly different version of Chevron. Um, but both of these, both step one and step two failures are at issue in this case. So the bulk of the majority opinion focuses on the step one failure. Um, in other words, they're saying that Congress was clear that articles is limited to um, what the court describes as material things, what I think of as just tangible property. And the court uses the traditional tools of statutory interpretation to reach this decision, starting with dictionary definitions. Now, Jeff described this as sort of an off-the-handle hypertextualist uh, viewpoint, and if you're not familiar with Chevron cases, you may wonder why is the court starting with the dictionary? Well, this is the prevailing approach from the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has had a number of decisions over the years on how Chevron interpretation works. Um, the conservative justices have been very influential in this area, including Justice Scalia. And dictionary definitions are a you know, common starting point for statutory analysis. Indeed, um, in some of the Supreme Court decisions, uh, Rucker versus HUD comes to mind. The court really says you start with the dictionary to see what the language means. So here, the Federal Circuit did just that. They turned to a variety of dictionaries. And what they noted was several general dictionaries that were contemporaneous with the passage of the Tariff Act. So dictionaries from you know, 1911 through the 19, you know, late 1920s and early 1930s define articles as material things. And they find that the Tariff Commission's own 1924 dictionary also supports a more restrictive reading of the term articles. Um, and finally, they also use specialty dictionaries. They look at Black's Law Dictionary um, as well and find there to be support for this idea that articles is referring to something much more limited than everything under the sun. Um, in addition to dictionaries, they also look at canons of construction. Um, a couple of them in particular. So nociter associus is one of them. A word is known by the company that it keeps. They don't reference it by name, but they talk about how a term should be used consistently throughout the same statute. Not a radical idea. Um, and when they do this, they observe that section 337i refers to articles being intercepted at the border. Now, the reason this is relevant is that electronic information can't be intercepted at the border. Customs doesn't have that authority. Customs can only seize things that arrive at ports of entry. So that's one of the reasons they say articles can't be as broad as what the ITC says it means. 
Another thing they do is they look at um, the they look at the fact that from 1930 to 1974, the sole remedy available in the ITC was just exclusion orders. So the ITC didn't get cease and desist authority until 1974, which means until 1974, the ITC had no way of addressing some kind of a violation of 337 where an intangible article was involved. Another way of saying this is for 44 years, there was no way of remedying any type of importation that involved intangible property. So that's odd. How could Congress have intended for articles to be super broad when they gave the ITC no power to deal with this until 74? And in 1974, they gave no indication that they were changing the definition of articles, nor in 1988. So that's also part of the reasoning for the court, that if what Congress wanted was some super broad um, jurisdiction for the ITC, then surely they would have given it more power um, than just exclusion orders. Now, there is a number of other arguments that they made as part of their step one analysis. And one that was mentioned earlier um, that I want to address was cases that were on point. Um, The case that's being alluded to earlier on um, was Associated Press, um, a Supreme Court decision involving telegraphs. So this was the one where um, people on the East Coast were getting wi- were wiring, you know, hot news stories to people on the West Coast, and then the West Coast agencies were copying these newspaper articles. And the reason why I bring it up is it was a case about newspaper articles. It wasn't a case about trade. It didn't involve the Tariff Act. It didn't involve the ITC. It didn't even involve articles in the context of trade. It involved newspaper articles. And as far as I can tell, that case has absolutely no bearing on any of the issues that are in front of us right now, um, given it was about a different meaning of the word articles. Um, there were some cases um, involving Article I courts. I think there was a court of, um, a court of tr- international trade decision, but none of these were binding on the federal circuit. Um, so that's the step one analysis. Um, what I also want to mention is the step two analysis uh, in the majority's decision. So it's worth mentioning here that the federal circuit could have stopped after step one because they found that the statute was clear, so no deference to the ITC follow Congress's clear intent. But the Federal Circuit did something very unusual in this case, which is they also held that a step two failure had occurred. That even if the statute was ambiguous under step one, that the ITC's interpretation was unreasonable. And as I briefly mentioned earlier, this is extremely unusual. Um, Outside of the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, you don't see step two failures. Um, It's considered to be a fairly extreme case that the agency has authority to interpret an ambiguous term, but what they did was so unreasonable, the court shouldn't follow it. So let me talk about why they held that there was a step two failure. Um, The ITC committed a somewhat egregious error, which I was the first one to catch um, back in December of last year. Um, In the commission opinion, the ITC quotes a Senate report, so a piece of key legislative history from the passage of the Tariff Act, 
to support its proposition that Congress intended the ITC's powers to be very broad. And they claimed that Congress said, quote, the provision relating to unfair methods of competition is broad enough to prevent every type and form of unfair practice. So it seems like a very broad statement, every type and form of unfair practice relating to unfair methods of competition. The problem was the ITC was misquoting the Senate report. What the Senate report actually says is the provision relating to unfair methods of competition in the importation of goods is broad enough to prevent every type and form of unfair practice. And this is very relevant because goods is widely understood to be restricted to tangible property. So during oral argument, um, I basically sent my paper off to the federal circuit to all the judges, hoping that someone would see this. And during oral argument, the federal circuit called out the agency for misquoting legislative history. There was no indication of a deletion here. And they used that as the basis for the step two failure, saying that the ITC had essentially misconstrued part of the legislative history. And though it was very likely in error, it did make their position look a lot more convincing than it actually was. Um, so we see a couple of different grounds on which they are, um, you know, in which they are finding the ITC's analysis to be lacking. Um, so in the few minutes I have left, I want to just give a few closing thoughts here. So one is that this case clearly quashes what I view as being a power grab by the ITC. Now, we have a disagreement here. Uh, you know, I, and I understand that the ITC commissioners have plenty of work to do. But for those of us who view Section 337 as being this kind of outdated protectionist statute, we view this as a huge victory um, because 337 to us has a very limited purpose. It was designed to offset the harsh, the harsh effects of free trade, and it wasn't about protecting patent rights. It wasn't meant to be an ancillary IP statute. It was meant to be something very narrow and very specific. Um, Another closing thought is just that the ITC has been taught a rudimentary, sort of a lesson in rudimentary statutory interpretation. Don't disregard relevant dictionary definitions just because they undercut the view that you would really like to take. Don't rely on non-contemporaneous statutes. They, they cite to the Driver's Privacy Protection Act, which I believe came out in the 1990s and has absolutely nothing to do with what articles meant in 1929 when the Tariff Act came out. Um, and also, don't misquote your legislative history or at least indicate your deletion um, when you're removing language from it. I think finally what we see here is that Chevron is here to stay for patent decisions. Um, in Dickinson versus Zirko, the Supreme Court told the Federal Circuit that it is obligated to follow the Administrative Procedure Act just like every other court of appeals in the country does, and that it applies to every agency, even those that, in, even those that involve patent law. And here we see Chevron, you know, from the Suprema decision, and now here that Chevron is the appropriate framework for these types of cases. Thank you. Yeah, that's fine. 
So uh, as most of you know, I'm a, a bit of a last-minute substitution here, or maybe the understudy playing the role of Scott Keefe, who was going to come and comment on this uh, before we knew that the Federal Circuit was going to decide the case um, and, and put it back in the ITC's laps. And so he was unable to come and speak today. Um, as one of the original majority that decided this case, uh, as Dan said, I, I didn't really want to talk about whether um, the commission got it right or got it wrong. And, and I should tell you that, you know, to the extent that my own thoughts on that do creep in, they're only my thoughts and not the thoughts of anyone else at the commission who participated, uh, nor does anything that I say today reflect the thoughts of uh, Covington's clients who actually have strong views on both sides of the case. Um, so I really can't say anything. Um, but I think I do want to start by um, following up a little bit on, on Dan's thought about this idea of power grab. Um, one of the reasons that a lot of people view the case in that context, I think, is because of issues that weren't actually in front of the commission in the case. Um, if you read the briefs that many of the amici submitted to the Federal Circuit, you would see that even though those amici completely disagree with each other about the outcome that they wanted in the case, they all agree with each other in the sense that they give the Commission's decision a much greater practical import than it actually had by presuming that this one decision also decided a bunch of issues that were in fact not in front of the Commission. Um, you know, in particular, you have one set arguing that under this decision, um, the ITC is now kind of the perfect and long-sought uh, forum to remedy uh, all forms of internet piracy in the in the copyrighted content space. Um, and on the other side, you have the argument that some of the other speakers discussed that. Um, the ITC uh, can now reach internet intermediaries and regulate the internet out of existence. Um, both of those points of view presuppose um, decisions on a number of issues that were not in front of the ITC in the clear correct case, in particular whether an ITC remedy could reach a party like an internet intermediary. Um, that is a complete unknown um, that you know someone would have had to bring in front of the ITC in a, in a subsequent case. Um, without a holding like that, what you have is a remedy that would only apply in some fairly narrow circumstances, such as those that were present in this dental aligner case. Um, I think that the court majority was very much influenced by the fact that all of the people who were looking at broader policy considerations had all agreed that the case had implications much broader than much broader than it actually had. I would also say that the this idea that the commission went into this with this idea of you know expanding its authority you know, if you, if you look at the case, well, if you look at the ALJ's decision that went up to the commission for review, the ALJ basically, basically said that the commission had already decided this issue in prior cases, and, and so there was, there was nothing to do here. It was already decided that the commission could reach these digital transmissions. Um, 
the commission could have, I mean, one of the alternatives that the commission would have had in this case would have been to say, yeah, that's right. We already decided this issue. There's really nothing to discuss here. So it would have been interesting to see, you know, how the federal circuit would have reacted to that version. Instead, the commission, you know, looked back at its prior cases and said, mm, maybe they weren't entirely on point here. There's a long footnote uh, in the majority's opinion, which talks about the, the prior cases on which some had relied to say that, that this had already been decided and said, well, it's not clear that any of those cases actually sat down, really thought about this word, import, these words, importation of articles, and what do they mean in this context? So maybe we'd better go back and do that analysis really carefully, because if we just say we've thought about this before, but it's not really written down, well, the Federal Circuit won't like that. Um, that kind of thinking really does go on. Um, so the commission was, in fact, trying to head off exactly what happened in the clear, correct decision by going back and trying to do a very careful analysis that would get Chevron deference. Um, you know, some good acts or good deeds are just not rewarded. I'll stop there. Well, thank you. Okay, we have um, the opportunity for questions, but first I want to ask the panelists whether they would care to make any comments based on the remarks of the other panelists. Anything you'd wish to respond to? I have. Please. Um, one thing I just wanted to mention is why is this case being viewed as something broader than just a case about teeth aligners? Because it, the comments were absolutely right. Like, the facts are very limited. It was a quirky type of patent that happened to have covered digital models. Most patents aren't like that. Um, the reason why is the Sony hack. Um, so after the Sony hack, um, a couple of memos from the Motion Picture Association of America came to light. And in those memos, it's from the MPAA's legal counsel, they were trying to figure out how to use this clear, correct decision from the ITC to further expand the ITC's jurisdiction over any kind of uh, you know, internet content that was coming into the US. And so while on one hand, the facts of this case itself were somewhat limited, um, there are clearly groups that wanted to use this to further expand the ITC such that it could actually block website content at the border. And I agree, it's not the facts that were in front of the ITC. It's you know, not necessarily going to happen from just that one decision, but that was where the broader uh, focus came from. Yeah, so I have a couple of things. Um, uh, the, the, the first point is... Um, I'm well aware of the way courts undertake uh, their Chevron analysis. And um, of course, they look at dictionary definitions. And of course, in certain contexts, it's appropriate to do so. Here, though, it's worth pointing out that the ITC also did, as I think I said, had 20 pages of dictionary definitions. Um, the, the Federal Circuit just found different dif dictionary definitions and decided that their definitions were better. There is no resolution of ambiguity when you have multiple competing dictionary, by, by, dic by definition, if you have multiple competing dictionary definitions that could mean different things. And if the goal of step one of Chevron is to determine whether there's ambiguity or not, by looking in this case at least at the dictionary, you don't resolve that at all. The word articles is still ambiguous. Uh, 
number two, um, the point about the cases on point, the INS versus the AP case. Um, I think it's a real red herring to point out that, that that takes place in a different context. That's not the reason that the ITC cited it, nor the reason that I cited it. What's relevant about the INS versus AP case is that it demonstrates that in an unfair competition context, in that case a misappropriation context, it would have been understood or could very well have been understood by Congress that that kind of thing could happen in the context of an intangible piece of content, in that case, uh, content that was transmitted by wire. It's not about the word articles. Yes, they were, they were newspaper articles. That's not the point. The point is that the, the text of those newspaper articles was transmitted by wire, and that process led to misappropriation. That's it. It's analogous. It's not meant to be precedential. It shows Congress could well have understood this. Uh, number three, um, it may not be the case that Congress in 1974 said explicitly um, uh, we're including intangibles in the word, uh, um, in the meaning of articles here. They didn't have to. By bringing the uh, intellectual uh, property statutes under the ITC's purview, that's effectively what they did. Because unless they were going to explicitly exclude large swaths of IP enforcement from the ITC, which they, they made very clear in 1988 they were not doing, um, the ability to, to enforce a uh, patent against a process rather than just a product, the clear awareness that intangible things could violate copyrights, that a TV broadcast could violate a copyright, means very clearly that if you're going to be able to enforce the IP laws, you are going to be able to do so in the context of intangibles. And I don't think that Congress had to explicitly say, by the way, when we said articles, we meant both tangible and intangible. Just by virtue of bringing in the IP laws, they accomplished that. And finally, the point about misquoting is, um, is bordering on slander or libel, whichever one is spoken and not written. I'm not a tort lawyer. Uh, uh, they left out the words uh, in the importation of goods, which doesn't change the meaning of what they were saying at all. They're well aware, they're the ITC, they're well aware that their purview is in the importation of goods. As I said before, that's the context in which that language was being used in the statute. I, I, there is no sense in which they're leaving out those words from the, the quote. I guess it would have been better to have a couple, uh, you know, an ellipsis, but it wouldn't have changed a thing, uh, and certainly couldn't be deemed to be nefarious because it couldn't, it, it didn't help them any. The idea that the word goods that they left it out because they didn't want the word goods to be there because that would undermine their argument that something intangible could be included here strikes me as as ludicrous as well. It's very clear that goods can be intangible. We have e-goods. We have all kinds of things that are traded in commerce that are intangible. Um, and again, we don't know exactly what Congress intended in 1929. These things may not have existed exactly in this fashion in 1929. That doesn't mean Congress didn't intend for the use of the word articles or goods or anything else to ultimately encompass them. Um, and the idea that goods are very clearly uh, physical goods is um, uh, doesn't strike me as holding any water. And, and by the way, the, the 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 court does this too. The court, the dissent. Um, uh, Judge O'Malley was the dissent in Suprema, and in her dissent, 
In Suprema, she quotes Black's Law Dictionary, by the way, from 1997, not from 1929, uh, defining article as, quote, generally a particular item or thing. Well, that's good. I'm fine with that definition. I think that very clearly includes intangible things. Generally, a, as long as they're well-defined, uh, they are a particular item or thing. She then says, though, uh, then her own language, that's the quote from Black's Law Dictionary, the word connotes a physical object. Somehow particular is being translated into physical. I, I don't think that that's, that's appropriate. I don't think that that's necessary. And again, I think that's the kind of misinterpretation here that leads to uh, such a degree of reliance on these dictionary definitions that we lose sight of what we're really trying to do, again, which is, which is, is determining what Congress's in, uh, intent was. Are there any further comments from members of the panel to the remarks of other panelists? I'll just add, and I'm sure that district court judges feel the same way that 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 I do, you know, looking at this federal circuit decision, which is basically that, you know, whoever gets to decide last gets to decide. Um, That's in the nature of Chevron, sadly. Yeah. Um, you know, and here I speak only for myself, but I think that it was it was certainly something that crossed my mind as as this case was in front of the commission. That you know there are a number of circumstances where, for example, former Chief Judge Rader used to always say that we had to decide cases while looking at the realities of the market, um, and that if one took a realities of the market kind of approach to this case, one would tend to agree with what the commission had done and say, you know, clearly intangibles can be articles of international commerce nowadays. That's the reality of the market. And so given the general purpose of Section 337, you know, these things should be included. It was also clear that one could get a panel that would take the opposite view that, you know, one needed to do a sort of a narrow textual analysis. Um, and that, you know, in the end, the best you can do is explain, you know, why you did what you did and then wait to see which panel you got. And, and that, I think, is, at least in my mind, I think I always saw that depending on, on who in the federal circuit was looking at this, you know, that's, that was how the outcome would be decided. And, and, you know, I think that has turned out to be true. Any further responses by members of the panel? Um, let me just briefly mention a few things. First of all, this is case involves separation of powers. If Congress intended for articles to be super broad, there is nothing stopping Congress from going and amending the Tariff Act. Indeed, it's overdue for uh, another round of uh, you know, amendments and revisiting, um, given how many things have changed. So you know, part of this is us trying to divine the interpretation of Congress and you know, trying to employ some amount of judicial modesty in terms of not throwing open the floodgates to this one agency's jurisdiction. So in terms of what Congress intended, there's nothing stopping Congress from coming back and telling us, um, no, we really wanted articles to be super broad. Um, I'd also like to just briefly point out with regard to the dictionary definitions, I mean, I've written about this in my article, and I feel like the Federal Circuit addressed this as well. The dictionary definitions that the ITC used to support its position didn't actually support its position. You could take the same definitions that they, that they were using in their commission opinion and show that they were misinterpreting um, 
limit, limiting language. And with regard to um, Judge Newman's 1997 Black's Law Dictionary, again, as an administrative law professor, I want to Come cry. It's not relevant. It's completely, it, it's, it, you know, whatever year that Black's Law Dictionary came out, it's not 1929. It's not contemporaneous. But that was so, Judge O'Malley, not Judge Newman. Oh, is it and Judge it, O'Malley? Well, either way, it's, it's still not the correct, um, it's not the correct source. Right, well, that's, that's why she was in the dissent in Suprema and why, why reference to that. Essentially, I see the clear, correct majority, the dissent in, in Suprema, implementing the views of the dissent in Suprema. It's, it's, um, it's ultra virus, effectively. And, uh, and this is why I think the, the, the en banc court could and should take the case up, and, and I would like to see them overrule it. But even if they don't, we've got to deal with this problem that we have a, two cases that are doing largely the same thing. They're interpreting different words, and they're different issues, but, but they're doing essentially the same thing. And you have the second one that is essentially um, uh, making law the dissent that was twice overruled in the prior one. That, that's a bad situation, as I have in my slides. I didn't get there. It's like a house divided, I said. I, I don't... I don't think they should let that stand. That doesn't mean that, you know, now we're reading tea leaves, thinking about whether they'll take this up on bunk. That doesn't mean they, they will. Excuse me, sorry, that doesn't mean they won't let it stand, but it strikes me as, as a problem. Why don't we open it to questions? Pardon? No, no I'm good. I think we've sort of exhausted the comments among panelists here. So uh, we are ready for questions. We have two microphones. Please uh, wait until the microphone has reached you before starting to speak, because we have a number of people who are watching this uh, live on, uh, via video. Uh, and please announce your name and affiliation. And be mindful that it's good to have questions rather than extended statements. So with that, is there anyone with a question? Yes, Mr. Duan. Hi, uh, my name is Charles Duan. I'm with the organization Public Knowledge. Um, I am counsel for one of the Amici that um, that Shara talked about. Um, the question I have is, you know, it seems to me there's a certain degree to which this is a case of bad facts want people to make bad law. Um, you know, I think, you know, Dan and um, Jeff, you both started off by talking about the fact that, um, you know, ClearCorrect had already received an ITC um, decision against them for physical importation of goods. Um, and then they turned around and came up with this sort of scheme in which they, you know, kind of arranged their corporate structure in certain ways and, um, you know, divide up the digital, um, use digital transmission rather than physical transmission of, of the, uh, the dental products. And, you know, I think that there, there is a substantial temptation to want to say, you know, this does seem like a circumvention of the, the ITC's um, of the ITC's order. The problem is that the ultimate decision that the commission came to was not interpreting articles such that articles only included things that were attempts to circumvent the ITC's jurisdiction in a previous decision. It decided that um, articles were basically um, anything that was discrete and um, separately identifiable, which is clearly far broader than um, than than the the types of devices that were at, at issue which you know I think has led to sort of the the difference in opinion as to whether or not this is a fairly broad or fairly narrow narrow decision you know I think if you start from the the, the viewpoint that this is a case about you know just this very narrow attempt to um, overcome a previous ITC decision it looks a lot more narrow um, than if you read the decision on its face so I'm wondering if 
people have thoughts in terms of you know how the facts have ultimately influenced the um, the, the viewpoints on this case. I, I would just say one thing, which is that there are a number of limitations I think built into the ITC's opinion, and I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out. Of course, they they only have this authority over infringing content, right? So, so with respect to this idea that they're going to regulate innocent intermediaries and, and others, nothing in their opinion gives them the authority to do so absent some underlying infringement. I think that's a pretty important to, to point out. I understand that you're making an argument even within that context, but that's a pretty big limitation. Um, also, uh, um, related to that, there is a sort of intent requirement in, in this. It's, it's not exactly, you know, it's, it, um, we can discuss how much it might limit in, in future cases, um, but it seems pretty relevant, and this, I guess, goes to the circumvention point. It seems pretty relevant to this case that, uh, that the thing that was being imported was indeed clearly definable and defined. I think that's really important, and that its purpose was to create its intent, intended purpose was, uh, because this was a contributory infringement, was to create infringing devices. I think that's pretty important too. And it is possible, I think, that, that ultimately the case could be limited, at least this, whole, this particular holding, not that I think their authority necessarily should be, limited to, to, uh, you know, circumvent, to um, circumvention, excuse me, uh, contributory infringement cases. Um, maybe that's the only context in which this comes up. Now, again, that's not going to, to solve all of the problems that you might have, but it is also another potential limitation. I, I'm sure that there are others as well. But at the end of the day, the fact that digital, well-defined digital content um, that is coming into the country could be within the ITC's purview seems appropriate and also hardly something that's going to bring down the Internet. Um, I think, Charles, that you're absolutely right, that there's part of this is coming from the fact that ClearCorrect was clearly trying to circumvent you know, the ITC's order, right? They couldn't import the physical aligners, so they instead imported um, these digital models that could be used to print out molds to create the same aligners. And the problem is, why, you know, why are we trying to shoehorn this into the ITC? We're all uncomfortable with the fact that there is a patent and it is being circumvented, but the problem is much larger than just imports. The problem is with the strength of patents overall and the fact that the Patent Act doesn't currently have a remedy for trading you know, 3D blueprints that can be used to print out patented you know, articles, goods, whatever we're calling them, stuff um, today. So, I mean, to me, again, the ITC is trying to fix a problem that it's not really their job to fix, which is if, if there are companies that are circumventing patent law by just importing blueprints, that shows there's an underlying problem within the Patent Act that needs to be addressed. Another question? Yes. Just with what the professor said, if they were importing... This, this is Judge Essex from <laughs> the... Uh, and I'm the not Russia representing Center. anybody but my own question. But if they were physically importing blueprints, is there any doubt that the ITC would have jurisdiction? And if this is just another form of blueprints, then why wouldn't they? Because it's a blueprint. I, I, there's no doubt. I, mean, I, I, I don't think it's an appropriate dividing line, but, but it's pretty clear from the court that when 
information is put down in a physical medium, it comes within the ITC's purview. And assuming those blueprints were on paper, yes, absolutely they would. And you're right, that seems like a distinction without a difference. And as Judge Newman astutely points out in her dissent, it's that distinction has been has been uh, discarded in a number of cases, been made very clear that it's an irrelevant distinction. Let me just be clear. If these blueprints were fixed to something, if they were importing disks, if they were importing hard drives, if they were importing something physical, then there would be something physical for customs to seize. My problem is that this is coming in through, you know, through the Internet, essentially, and this is outside of customs jurisdiction, and the, therefore this is also outside of the ITC's authority. Yes. Clintradine, I guess I'll remain anonymous. Uh, I was just curious if any of the panelists had any uh, comment on the, uh, I guess, kind of novel concurring opinion from O'Malley regarding Chevron step zero, that you only have to get to step one or step two, given that Congress expressly intended the uh, ITC not to even entertain the, uh, the jurisdictional question. I'm happy to speak to that. I think Judge O'Malley is wrong. Yeah, even though I agree with the majority decision overall, I think her concurrence isn't correct. So what Judge O'Malley is saying is that we would never need to reach Chevron step one because her claim is that the ITC is trying to regulate the Internet, that they don't have authority to do so, and therefore you know, there's something wrong right off the bat. My issue is this. Step zero is actually a somewhat limited doctrine, Basically, the questions we ask in step zero is, is the agency the sole agency that's charged with interpreting the statute at issue? In this case, the ITC was charged with administering the Tariff Act, and no other agency has that jurisdiction. Um, Step zero asks, how formal was the agency's decision? Was it formal adjudication or notice and comment rulemaking? And in this case, we have the requisite level of formality as well, um, because it's under 556 and 557 of the APA. And even though this case does involve, you know, internet transmission, they are very clearly interpreting their organic statute, the Tariff Act. So I think that Judge O'Malley is wrong. I think we do have to get to Chevron step one in this case. So um, what what she's talking about uh, is something that is, uh, no one knows whether it's Chevron step zero, whether it should come in at Chevron step two. Um, it doesn't really matter. The, I, I think, while I completely disagree with her conclusion, um, I think she's right that there are, in fact, a set of cases. There is something called the Major Questions Doctrine, the Brown and Williamson case recently reinvoked in a couple of Supreme Court cases, the UARG case in 2014 and King versus Burwell from this term, uh, that ask a preliminary question. Whether you call it step zero or not, it is appropriate to ask a question, essentially, regardless of whether there's ambiguity here, is this a question that merits deference to, uh, to the agencies? Or is this something that is so important uh, or has, has aspects that are otherwise so uh, it, well, important that we, the court, just have to take it upon ourselves to deal with this issue. We can't leave it to them. That's, I think, what she was essentially talking about, and that's actually a m- perfectly appropriate question. Whether it's step zero or not doesn't really matter. It is the right question to ask, and it's going to be being asked more and more, uh, again, given the, the Supreme Court's inv- invocation of it in the last couple of terms. Um, but that said, she got it completely wrong. Jean-Francois. 
Well, thank you, Jean-François Wadin. Actually, three questions. Uh, the number one is about articles in the uh, Tariff Act. Uh, as I suppose that people have been looking at the history of the use of the word articles in the legislative uh, uh, history of the time. So why not say products, goods, or whatever? Second question to uh, Sabna Kumar. Am I understanding correctly that if you have a patent or a copyright, uh, you are an holder of a patent and a copyright, if your patent or copyright is violated over the internet, well, tough luck for you. You just wait till the Congress uh, legislates on, uh, on that. Is that uh, a correct reading of the situation? No. Uh, and uh, third question is, there is actually a debate that has been going on, not very actively, in the WTO for now 20 years or so, about uh, uh, what's exactly electronic transmission. Is it a good? Is it a service? Should it be taxed? Uh, the Nairobi meeting is probably going to uh, consecrate one more time the fact that uh, electronic transmission should not be taxed. And I would like to know how the panel see the relevance of the ITC decision on that debate going on in Geneva. I'd be happy to start with the second question that was addressed to me. Um, no, if, if your patent or copyright is violated and it involves the Internet, that's what we have the Patent Act and the Copyright Act for. The Copyright Act already has fairly robust provisions to deal with digital copyright infringement. Um, the Patent Act is... La, you know, is lagging in this. Um, we haven't seen cases until relatively recently where people were able to trade files that could then be used to print out infringing goods or infringing, you know, articles. Um, that part, the part involving 3D printers, the part where, you know, people are trading these files, that I do think needs to be addressed in the Patent Act just because currently it's not actually patent infringement to trade those files. Um, Timothy Holbrook at Emory and Lucas um, Osborne at Campbell have both done, have both written several papers in the area, and really it seems to sort of fall through the cracks of the Patent Act. And that part, I do think Congress needs to address it. It needs to make changes to the Patent Act. But just infringement over the Internet, we have mechanisms in place for that, more under the Copyright Act than under the Patent Act. But I... I think in these types of cases, a federal district court is the place where such an action should be brought. Hmm? Well, if it's a patent violation involving a 3D file that can be printed on... Do you, the, the technology for 3D printing has only come into wide use somewhat recently, right? But that's a bigger problem than just the ITC. It's not even patent infringement right now. If I take a file um, that you know, will, could be used to print out um, some patented good, and then I give it to you, no infringement has occurred. Inducement. Not necessarily. It, I know, of course I'm not, not necessarily. No, 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 not, not necessarily. There are standards required to determine whether it's actually inducement or not, but if they're met, it's inducement. There, the point is that there is, that, that it very well could be, if, if contained entirely within the United States, subject to the domestic patent laws, to, to my mind, maybe there's disagreement about this, in, in, in contributory infringement circumstances, including inducement, 
this could be a, a clear violation. Um, and, and in fact, that, that's the underlying issue in the, in the Suprema case. It's actually an underlying issue in this case as well. Uh, and what's a problem, though, is uh, if you don't have jurisdiction over the infringer because they're outside of the country. And in that case, um, it's a lot harder. It's not clear that either the Patent or the Copyright Act would uh, do anything particularly useful. That's possible. There are ways. There are ways, of course, of going against the recipient rather than the, the sender. Um, there, there are other forms of third-party liability. Uh, but it's, it's a lot harder. And that's why those statutes were, were brought into the Tariff Act uh, and enforceable by the ITC, precisely that situation. So I, in the international context, I think you're right, and it's a problem. Question here front and center. Herb Rose, no current affiliation. Uh, I'm not sure about the relevancy of the question, but um, I know that attorneys, and particularly patent attorneys, spend a lot of time dwelling on exact words and their meanings. Um, the Patent Act, I think, refers to articles of manufacture. So one was um, article used in the same context and sense in both um, the ITC uh, uh, acts and uh, the Patent Act. And would it matter any if um, this were a composition of matter that was uh, being dealt with, uh, in, used in um, They're all compositions of matter. I mean, this is another, you know, Judge Newman makes this point. Um, electrons are matter. Um, I mean, we, we, we use the word, you know, we say that, there, that there's not a physical article here. Um, and and I, certainly this isn't what Congress was thinking, and I, and I admit that it's splitting hairs, but if we're going to be splitting hairs, these are physical. They're, they're not, I don't know, somehow in, in some uh, other dimension, or uh, they aren't, they aren't antimatter, right? So... Well, but, but you know, if, that, if we're really going to parse words, these are all physical things. I would also just briefly mention, I don't think we should read the Tariff Act in pari materia to the Patent Act. Um, first of all, because they were passed at very different times. I mean, the language you're referencing, I believe, came in under the 1952 Act, um, Tariff Act being 1929. Part of it also because... The Tariff Act isn't a patent statute. It's not an IP statute. It's something far, you know, it's something far different. It was about protectionism. It was about how to protect U.S. companies against kind of harsh effects of free trade. And I don't feel like we should be looking at it through the lens of what does the Patent Act say, given there's far broader implications to articles beyond the context of patent infringement. In the back, on the right, or my right, your left. Hi, my name is Daniel Kane. Uh, sorry if I'm way too close to the mic. Um, I recently wrote an article about 3D printing. Um, Professor Kumar, I think you've actually seen it. Um, and I discuss how 3D printing is advancing to a point where it could theoretically be in everyone's household and it would change commerce. My question is, you, you suggested that we go to Congress to have them delineate what articles mean. Would you support them having a broad statute, a broad definition, um, if they passed it tomorrow, that would allow the ITC to 
um, change and evolve to respond to the economy as it stands? That is a great question. Um, answer is no. So I believe it's Congress's right to do so. Let's just, I want to be clear about that. If Congress wants to go and expand it, they can absolutely do that. I don't personally think it's a good idea because the ITC is grounded in protectionism. It's not about promoting innovation. It's about protecting U.S. companies. And I don't think foreign patent holders should be at a disadvantage just because they don't have a substantial U.S. presence. So that's why I believe it should be done under the Patent Act, because I think it's wrong to treat U.S. patent holders differently than foreign entities that also hold U.S. patents and don't, have, don't meet the domestic industry requirement. So that, that's the reason. I don't, I don't believe that the ITC's jurisdiction should be further expanded out because it just increases this disparity and possibly would lead to a GATT violation, though. Different subject for another time. One practical point, and, and this goes to the idea that, you know, even if Congress were to make it crystal clear that if you you know, download infringing content onto your um, 3D printer in your basement and then create a, a product from that that you would be subject to the ITC's Section 337 jurisdiction, it wouldn't be a very practical remedy that people would run out and use. The same way that you wouldn't bring a Section 337 case um, which can cost millions of dollars to litigate against teenagers illegally downloading music off of foreign servers. It's just not a practical, you know, the, the cost of going after enforcement that way is too high for anyone to actually use the statute that way. You know, which actually raises a really good, uh, a good point with respect to the, the this is the end of the internet as we know it argument. Um, the, the ITC is not very useful for that either. If your objective is, uh, it, it is actually a pretty efficient body for certain things. Um, but if your objective is, uh, is kind of broader, you go to the district court and, and you and the, and as I said, the district courts have been dealing with broad questions of enforcement against intangible content for a really long time. In other words, with a scope, a, a reach far broader than the ITCs. And and as far as I know, the internet's still working perfectly. Um, and and I, th I but I think it's a really good point. The ITC is limited in important ways. Uh, and and. It means that a lot of the fears that about what might come out of this opinion need, you know, need to be made more realistic. Well, lunchtime has arrived. Do the panelists have any final thoughts they'd want to share? It's been so interesting. Uh, no, you've shared enough already? I think I've shared enough. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. Well, lunch will be served upstairs on the second floor. You go up the spiral stairs. There are... Um, uh, restrooms on the second floor as, as you're heading to lunch. I just observed that much of my career has benefited from being surrounded by really bright attorneys who may or may not have agreed with themselves. Uh, you know, it depends. But that same has been the, the case uh, this afternoon, and I just want to ask you to join me in thanking the panelists. Thank you.